You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you today. And we'll be focused on that last passage in case you didn't already pick up on this, which I'm guessing you did. It's pretty intense. (laughs) It's going to be a heavy one. And I think we always want to pray as we prepare to receive God's word. But I think it's especially important for us to do that today with such a heavy word. So let's do that. Let's come before God as he's here with us by his spirit. And he's wanting to act in each of our lives. Father, uh, First, I want to come to you. I I just need your help as I share what I think you've given to me. God, I want to be faithful to Jesus' word, so help me to do that. For the things that I say that are in line with your will and with Jesus, I pray that you would bless those things, that you would uh, um, use them to illuminate your word and for people here to receive it. God, if there's anything that I say that's not in that category, would you just let it fall away like dross? And God, all of us, we want to come before you today. We want to uh, invite your Holy Spirit to to help us to see your will, and not just see it, though, to be people who do your will, so that we can live in the love that you have for us. Help us to enjoy your presence in our lives in that way. And as we continue to look at these words, God, there are going to be people who are here today that don't know you. And if, if that's anyone here or, or watching this online, God, would you do a supernatural work of salvation in their lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody know what this is? Besides just being a violin, anyone know what's significant about it? This violin is called the Messiah Stradivarius. Kind of a cool name, right? Um, And and it's said to be Antonio Stradivari's crowning achievement. It's the most valuable musical instrument in all of human history. It's valued at over a million, or 30 million dollars, okay? Pretty crazy. And uh, if you aren't familiar with Stradivarius violins, this guy was a violin, viola, and cello maker in Italy from the 16 to 1700s. Uh, his name's Antonio Stradivari. He's widely known to be the greatest maker of all time. Uh, one of his violins sold at auction in 2011 for $16 million, uh, the highest ever for, for any musical instrument. And experts say that only around 650 of his violins, and that sounds, I shouldn't even say only, that's actually kind of a lot, isn't it? 650 of his violins exist today. Each one of them is accounted for. Obviously, with such value, people have traced these things and kept track of them. Yet, every once in a while, one that has been missing, perhaps it was stolen long ago or something to that effect, one that's been missing is, has been found. Maybe it's sitting in an attic covered in dust, right? And someone, someone finds it, and, and they, they bring uh, that out. They tell everybody that they found it, and of course, that makes headlines. And what does everybody else do when they read those headlines? 
they go up to their attic, right? <laughs> they want to see if they've got a Stradivarius violin in their attic too. And, and a lot of people actually find a mysterious violin that they didn't know that their grandma had in their attic. It's kind of crazy. And what do, they, what do they do when they find it? They open up that case. They look inside that violin, and they see a label that looks like this. And they freak out. They start going ballistic. They start calling every violin maker in their whole state, trying to see how much this violin is worth, only to discover that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of fake Stradivarius violins out there, all with this kind of forged label on the inside. What's the point? Just because it was done in the name of Stradivarius doesn't mean it was done by the will of Stradivarius. For it to be authentic, it must be done by his will. If not, it's a fake. Whoever was the person who made it, they did it according to their own will, not to his. And in a similar way, there are many people who try to put the Jesus label on their lives without ever knowing him, without ever considering whether they're actually living for him. And these false disciples think that by simply making claims to their affiliation with Jesus, they're granted the same privileges as one who has given their life to follow him. But they're mistaken. They're mistaken. Jesus can't be both Lord and genie. He can't, you can't be the Lord over Jesus, is what I'm trying to say. And one day when he returns to judge the living and the dead, everyone's life will be laid bare and it will be revealed who were actually a part of his kingdom, who, who claimed to be in it, and who, who was false, whose claims to his kingdom were true, whose claims were false, who had fake faith and who had real faith. This is very, very heavy. And so is there any way that we can possibly know today who is a true disciple? Is there any way that we can confirm that we have entered the kingdom? What's the sign? What's, what's the measure? Well, Jesus is going to teach us that today. The big idea is when we enter the kingdom of God, we do the will of God. And so we're going to split up the text into two different parts. We're going to look at how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is really focusing on true disciples. And then we're going to look at how to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven, which will be looking at false disciples. So let's begin. How to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look first at verse 21 in chapter 7. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now we've told you that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a series of warning signs. We began this a few weeks ago. We started by looking at the narrow gate. Last week was false prophets. This week you could call it false disciples is where it'll land. And as you've already gathered, as I've already said, this is going to be very, very heavy, very sobering. But I believe Jesus isn't sobering us up in order to cause those of us who are true disciples to kind of go into some 
downward spiral of morbid introspection and navel-gazing and self-doubt. That's not his point. Rather, he's urging us once again, like he's done through this entire Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again, he's urging us not to get caught in the charms of external gifts and behaviors without paying attention to our hearts. He's trying to help us to avoid fake faith. Now, those who are true disciples and who do pay attention to the heart are described here as those who do enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to ask, what is the kingdom of heaven? We've asked this question a few times throughout Matthew's gospel. It's the most common theme in the whole book. Jesus says the phrase, I think it's like 33 times. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the realm over which God rules as king. It's the realm over which God rules as king. In other words, it's the fulfillment of God's will on earth. And in John's gospel, he doesn't use that phrase. He, he describes it as eternal life with God. And so in some sense, the kingdom is related to the eternal salvation of our souls. Okay, then how do we enter it? That's what we want to know, right? If, that's, if, if this is all hanging on the eternal salvation of our souls, if this is all hanging on living within the love and the will of God, how do we enter into this kingdom? Jesus just told us. He said, do the will of his Father in heaven. And that makes perfect sense, right, if you think about it. Since the kingdom is the rule of God, we enter it when we come under his wise, gracious, and powerful rule. How do we do that? By doing his will. Now, a lot of people mix this up. It's really easy to do. They, they, they think that the kingdom of heaven is some kind of abstract salvation off in the distant future. And like any good Reformed Christian, like we tend to be around here, right? They think that salvation is something that only God does, and therefore we are just passive recipients of, like we are just sitting here waiting around for God to do this work of salvation in our lives. The problem is, when we think this way, we think that there's nothing that we can do to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus just said, we enter by doing the will of his Father. And it's, of course, at this point that you can kind of picture the ghost of Martin Luther flying into the room here and going, whoa, 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 whoa. Come on, Jesus. What are you saying? It sounds to me like you're saying that there's something that we can do to enter your kingdom, and that sounds to me like salvation by works and not by faith. That's where our minds tend to go. And I think that if Martin Luther, the ghost of Martin Luther, really were here, and if he really did say that, I think that Jesus would respond to him by saying something like, don't get distracted, Marty. I think Jesus calls him Marty. I like that. <laughs> I want you to evaluate whether or not you're doing my Father's will. That's the point. What is the Father's will? Well, remember, it's the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's summed up in the great commandment of love God and love others. 
But a few weeks ago, we kind of broke down the Sermon on the Mount into a bunch of bullet points just to kind of give us some shape to what the, the narrow way was. You guys might remember that if you were here. The narrow way and the Father's will, pretty much synonymous. We, we looked at that. We said it's being poor in spirit, right? We looked at, at the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, kind of summed it up. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, being hungry and thirsty for God, being merciful, being pure-hearted, being peacemakers, being persecuted, being reconcilers, being faithful, being honest, being long-suffering, loving our enemies, and being whole. And I, I realize that these things can feel very um, principled, so I wanted to kind of tell you a story that I think illustrates what the Father's will could look like in someone's life and, and illustrates these things becoming tangible. Here's a story that I read. A West Indian woman who was living in London found out that her father or her husband died suddenly in a tragic accident. And the grief for her when she learned of this news, the grief was just absolutely overwhelming. She was immobilized. She kind of sank into her sofa in her living room and was unresponsive to those around her. And for days and days this went on. She sat there while family and friends came in and out of the room. And then someone else showed up, one of the teachers from her kid's school, a woman who was a believer in Jesus, someone who seemed to have some sort of a relationship with this woman. And as she walked in, she immediately saw the grieving woman on the sofa sitting like this statue. And she went and she sat down beside her. And the story that I read said, the teacher put an arm around the tight shoulders of the grieving wife. A white cheek touched the brown. Then as the unrelenting pain swept through her, the newcomer's tears began to flow quietly, falling on their two hands linked in the woman's lap. For a long time, all that was, this was all that was happening. Then at last, the West Indian woman began to sob. Still not a word was spoken. And this went on for quite a while. Then finally, the visitor got up and left, leaving her money to help the family in its, meet its immediate practical needs. This is a story of someone doing the Father's will. Uh, we could look at what the church in uh, Latvia that we're partnering with is doing. That's a story of someone doing the Father's will. Someone who has entered the kingdom of heaven. This is what their life looks like. Now John Calvin said it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we do that by living in such a way that shows where our allegiance lies. The kingship of Jesus begins to then take hold on everything, on our jobs, on our families, on our schools, even on our wallets, right? Why? Because in Jesus, God is king over every sphere of life. And so how does this relate to being true disciples? Well, Jesus said, 
not everyone will enter. Meaning that some who call on the name of Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven, just not all. Why? Because it's, there's more to it than just that. There's more to it than simply calling on the name of Jesus. It's not just a matter of saying the right Christian things or praying the right prayers or acting like you know him. We must also live obedient lives that flow from that wholehearted devotion to God that Jesus has been stressing this whole time, the thing that he's been teaching us throughout. So let's look now at how to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven, obviously with the mind of avoiding it. We want to avoid being excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to teach us what that looks like. Beginning in verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus begins verse 22 with this phrase, on that day, which is biblical shorthand for the final day of judgment. In the Old Testament, they use the language of uh, the day of the Lord. It's the same thing. And Jesus tells us here, what will be judged on that day? What was it? It was the work of a person's life. And these false disciples here, they're rejected and they're cast away from eternal joy in God's presence. And the basis of that fact is that they are workers of lawlessness. It's not based on whether or not they made a profession of faith. I want you to see that. In fact, this phrase that they used, Lord, Lord, was a profession of faith. This was, would have been language that a disciple would have made to his master. They're identifying with Jesus here. And yet Jesus doesn't tell us not to say, Lord, Lord. He's not saying, don't make professions of faith. He's just saying, it's not enough. Which is why these fake disciples are excluded, because their profession of faith had no bearing on their life. And so how are we excluded from the kingdom of heaven? The answer Jesus gives is by being a worker of lawlessness. People who don't do the will of his Father. In other words, someone could shout, these, these false disciples could shout, Lord, Lord, all they want. But there wasn't any fruit. There wasn't any fruit. And so rubber stamping Jesus' name on our actions doesn't make fake faith real. These guys were doing things that weren't the will of God. Or perhaps they weren't doing things that was the will of God. Maybe that's the best way to put it. One pastor said of these false disciples, they've been practicing a religion of their own devising. They're prophesying. They're casting out evil spirits, demons. They're doing all these mighty works, perhaps healing people. We don't know. And all those things are good. They, they, they seem good, but they're meaningless if they don't flow from a wholehearted devotion to God that Jesus has been teaching us. And what's crazy is that it doesn't appear as if these guys were even surprised that they were rejected by Jesus. 
Their attempts to prove their authenticity come off much more like self-justification than surprise. They've deceived themselves into believing that they're actually in the kingdom just because of these things that they have done. In fact, they're telling Jesus, you have to let me in. You have to do it. I didn't just do the right things. I did the most powerful things, Jesus. You've got to let me in. I preached. I led people to make professions of faith. I planted churches, Jesus. Those are our modern equivalents. But there's a difference between doing great things and doing God's will. There's also a difference between doing God's will to prove that you love Him and doing God's will simply because you love Him. And this is what Jesus is saying will be evaluated on Judgment Day, the work of a person's life, which may bring up a lot of fear for us today. And I want to unpack that, because in some ways, it, it, it would be right for that to bring up fear, right? You, you hear Jesus' words here, depart from me, I never knew you, and you want to avoid that at all costs, and rightly so. In your mind, it starts going again, back to salvation. You start asking questions like, hold on, is Jesus saying if I ever fail to do God's will, then I won't be saved? Is that what he's saying? And yet Jesus brings up the final judgment not to tell us how to be saved, but to warn us what is at stake in how we choose to live today. He's saying that the way we live does affect how we will be judged. Of course, you can kind of imagine the ghost of Martin Luther coming back in here again, right? And, and saying, come on, Jesus, get it right. This sounds like salvation by works, not by faith. I think Jesus is saying salvation is not received by works, but it is tested by them. So you look at the, the whole scripture, that, that's the way that it communicates this reality. Salvation is by faith, but judgment is by works. And if you're interested, I've got a long list of scriptures that describe this, that show you how pervasive this truth is, that salvation is by faith and judgment is by works. I can give that to you later if you come and ask me. But maybe it would be helpful for now just to imagine this in the context of a story. Let's take it out of the theoretical. Let's bring it into some story and the way that the scripture talks about, okay? So think about James chapter 2, 21 through 23. It, it, it describes the story of Abraham. And he says there, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. His faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, meaning that his actions were a sign of his faith. And so the, the, the offering of Isaac on the altar was God testing Abraham's faith. Another example, maybe, maybe you're familiar with the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, Right, And maybe when you think of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, you picture Charlton Heston with a really big fake beard. Anybody? No? Okay. Ten commandments. I, I, okay. 
It's okay if you picture Charlton Heston as Moses. That's fine. That might even be helpful for you right now as you think about this story. As the Israelites have, have left Egypt and they're about to cross the Red Sea, they're completely trapped. They're, they're cornered. They're, they're, they're trapped on both sides. They, they've got the water in front of them. And off in the distance, they've got Pharaoh and his armies coming in their chariots and their horses and their weapons. And here's almost a million people sitting on this beach with livestock and women and children and all their possessions. They are trapped. They're stuck. They're hopeless and they're helpless. There's absolutely nothing that they can do to save themselves. They're dead as they stand. And what does God do? God works a miracle. He, he somehow, we don't know how, he splits these waters into two and dry ground appears in front of them. And he holds these waters back and man, can you even fathom a million people walking through these waters clear over to safety on the other side? And as they all land on the other side, the waters come crashing down on Pharaoh and his army, and they're all absolutely destroyed. And what do God's people do when they get on that other side and they see all of their enemies destroyed? What do they do? They praise God as their salvation. As their salvation. God split the sea for them. Something they absolutely couldn't do. But they obeyed his will and walked through to the other side. Something they absolutely could do. And God absolutely expected them to do. By God's design, salvation is something they received by faith. It's a gift from God. Not something that they earned, not something they deserved. But it required action. Their faith was tested by the action. And in the same way, our faith requires action. But it's dependent on God's salvation. Jesus splits the sea, if you will, by dying for our sin and rising in triumph over our enemies. Praise God. But we must still walk through the waters. As Bible scholar Bill Mounts said, faith is not an abstract quality that can be validated by some spiritual test unrelated to life. God judges faith by the difference it makes in how a person actually lives. In fact, you could go to the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 25 and see this very clearly. Jesus teaches that those who respond to the needs of the hungry, to the thirsty, to the stranger, to the sick, to the prisoner will be rewarded on the last day with eternal life. But those who fail in these things, those who fail to do the will of the Father will go away to eternal punishment. Jesus uses those exact words. The way we live does affect how we will be judged. You might say, oh, okay, okay, fine, but, but what does that mean for, for right now? What does that mean f about entering the kingdom? 
Do we enter the kingdom of God by doing things or do we do by entering? In other words, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? God saving us or us obeying him? And I just got to say, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that the Bible is really explicit. I don't think it really is all that concerned with how these things mechanically work. And in the end, what difference does it make? Jesus is persuading us here, and we can't miss this. He's persuading us to want the Father's will in our lives today. And therefore, we enter the kingdom as we want His will, and we find life there. He's offering us a gift. And I realize that giving you that answer is not satisfying. There are probably many people here who still have this question. You're still concerned. Does it make a difference whether or not we enter the kingdom and eternal life by obedience? And I think there there are two kinds of people who are really concerned about this. There's one who might be worried that there's like this minimum amount of work that's required, and you want to know what that is so you can do it. And then there's a whole other person who's worried that they'll never be good enough. And so I want to address, if if either of those are you, I want to address both of those. If you're that first person, you're just wanting to know, what's the minimum amount, Jesus? I just want to get into heaven. What what do I got to do to appease you? If that's you, I just got to say you're looking at it all wrong. All wrong. It's like Jesus is standing here teaching us, and and he's just so good and wise, and he's telling us how to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us how to experience the love of God, how to express the love of God, how to uh, be able to enjoy life with God for all of eternity. And it's like we interrupt him. We're like, yeah, 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 that's fine, Jesus, but am I saved? That's all I want to know. That's all good. Just tell me if I'm saved. And if that's you, friend, you have missed the gift that Jesus is offering to us. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. But maybe you're in that second category. You you fear that you will never be good enough. Maybe maybe you're mindful of things that you've done in the past. You just think there's no way that I could ever be good enough to, to deal with those things. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life right now, today, and you're going, there's, I'm just not good enough. There's no way I can do the Father's will well enough. Or you're thinking, I know myself. I know I'm not going to do it good enough in the future, so I just need to be mindful of that reality. But friend, if you're concerned that you will never be good enough, you're probably in the kingdom already. I want you to hear that today. If you're concerned that you'll never be good enough, you're probably in the kingdom already. Maybe you're someone who has an extremely sensitive conscience. Maybe you're someone who, when Jesus is wisely telling us these things, how to enter the kingdom of God, enjoy life with God, enjoy the love of God, enjoy life with God for all of eternity in his presence, you interrupt Jesus and you, you don't say what that last person said. You say, yeah, Jesus, but what if I'm not good enough? Jesus, what if I don't do enough? 
And I think if, if that's you, Jesus' answer would be, of course you're not good enough. Of course you're not. Of course you can't do enough. That's why I came. That's why I came to cleanse you and forgive you and save you. You needed a savior. Friends, what is so clear in Scripture is that we can't work our way to God, but that God came to us to do what we couldn't do, to save us, because we couldn't save ourselves. And our response to that grace that we don't deserve is just to love Him, to do His will, and to gradually become more and more like Him until we see Him. And so for those of you who are here today and you're just, you're hearing these words of Jesus and you're just weighed down by this fear that one day you're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, I would encourage you just to ask yourself three questions. I want to give you three questions to ask yourself and, and then I'm going to process through briefly as I close three possible responses to these questions. First question, am I doing the will of my Father God? Am I? Maybe, maybe I am, and I'm just thinking too much about the, the, all the ways I'm failing at it. Maybe I'm also doing the will of my Father God. In other words, does my life show the fruit of faith? Does it? Is there evidence of faith in my life? Second question, when I fail to do the will of my Father God, which all of us will, every single one of us except for Jesus, absolutely will, when I fail to do the will of my Father God, am I sorrowful about it? Do I wish I hadn't? Do, do then, number three, do I want to be more and more obedient to Him even if I don't know how, even if it's hard, even if I continue to struggle, do I want that? And if you answered yes to these questions, then you just confirmed that you have the kingdom already. You're already in the kingdom of God, friend. You don't need to fear, but you, you probably do need those regular rhythms of uh, of Christian confession of sin and assurance of pardon, which we will do in our service. We deliberately moved it from the front part of our service to after the sermon for this exact reason today. We'll practice it in just a moment. But you might need that practice of, I need to confess my sin, I need to be assured of pardon, so that you can just be reminded that your soul is secure in Christ. So if, if you answered yes, that, that's for you. Maybe you answered yes, though, and you answered it just kind of more reluctantly, like, yeah, I, I think so. Maybe, maybe you're just exploring Christianity, you're new to Jesus, you're not even sure what it means quite yet to follow Him. I'm so glad you're here. We want to help you learn how to do that. Or perhaps you have been a Christian for a really long time, but you regularly struggle with doubt. None of the rest of us struggle with doubt, friend. You're the only one, okay? You know I'm kidding. All of us do from time to time. 
Just because Jesus has warned us of the urgency of entering doesn't mean that he doesn't allow people to linger, to ask questions, and even to doubt. Doubt is actually a way into learning. Doubt can often be a way that we address the very things that prohibit faith. The question is, where does your doubt lead you? Are you passing through that doubt toward the kingdom of heaven? Or is that doubt pushing you away? At the end of all of your searching and all your asking and all your pleading with God and all your studying or whatever you do, at the end of all that doubt, are you all in or are you all out? And lastly, if you answered no to these questions, friend, you do need to fear. You need to fear today. Because if that is left unchanged, you will hear the words that no one wants to hear, the worst words that anyone could hear before being cast away from the presence of God for all of eternity. Jesus will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. But the good news is, it's not too late. Jesus brought you here today so that you would never have to hear those words. Right now, today, Jesus is giving you an urgent message. He's saying, change directions. Enter his kingdom today and you won't be excluded on that day. Romans tells us, if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, that is good news for you today. We want you so, so much for you to enter into his kingdom today, friend. We enter, when we enter the kingdom of God, we do the will of God. And here are two community group questions to just spark your conversations as you unpack this this week. What attracts you to the kingdom of heaven? What about it is beautiful, wonderful, something that you desire? And then what fears or doubts are stirred in your heart when you consider the final judgment? Let's pray and then we'll respond to God together. God, we thank you so much for Jesus' words here. And we do need them, Lord. No matter where we're at today, we need them. Whether we're all in, whether we're doubting, whether we haven't entered yet, God, would you help us to draw near to you today? That on that last day, we would remain near to you for eternity. And as we respond to you, God, we pray that you would continue to work in this gathering and work in our lives and our hearts to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, 
visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.